Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Friday series with James Jordan and the Book of Romans, and today he'll be discussing Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32. As always, please take a look at those links down there in the show notes for upcoming events and where to find us online. We'd also love for you to join us over on the Theopolis app, where you can find a lot of our media, which we are updating every week. And most recently, we have our 2022 Theopolitan Ministry Conference in its entirety. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Romans chapter 1. Not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is against nature. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Amen. This morning we'll consider the second half of the first chapter of Romans chapter 16 to the end of the chapter, which will leave us on a rather down note. I imagine that the book of Romans was designed to be read as a unit in the church. And so what we should actually do today is just read the whole book of Romans from beginning to end and comment on it as we go and have the Lord's Supper around 6 tonight. But that's not the way we do things in the churches nowadays. I mean, you already know the end of this that the sinfulness of man is taken care of by the redemptive work of Christ. But Paul doesn't leave us in the dark either. He begins by telling us this. We get the gospel first and then the law. And that, of course, is the order of presentation everywhere in Scripture. God made the promise to Abraham, and only four centuries later did he give the law. That's why it's best to confess our sins, receive forgiveness, and then hear the law of God. And that's how we do it in the Reformed churches ordinarily. Well, here in Romans, we get the gospel first in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And you'll remember that we said that the gospel is not simply the idea that God justifies sinners by faith alone, that we're saved as individuals in Christ, because that was known throughout the Old Testament period. That was known in the old creation. That's what the sacrificial system was all about, and everybody understood that. We deserve to die. We bring an animal to substitute for us. The animal is, according to the law, a son of our house. So we bring our son to die for us. We know quite clearly from Genesis chapter 22 that these animals are substitutes for Isaac, the son of Abraham. So we know that when we bring an animal and kill it, we are actually killing our son. 
We are killing a human being. Only a human being can atone for our sins. God is the one who has to appoint this human being. It has to be a human being without blemish and absolutely sinless and so forth. We know all this. It's very clearly revealed in Leviticus and Genesis. No one has any doubt about it. And we know that someday God will send his son to do these things. And so that aspect of the gospel is known. But what is good news, what is new, is that Jesus Christ has come. That he is the second Adam. And not only that he is the second Adam who has paid for our sins, but that God has raised him from the dead, taken him up into heaven, and seated him at the right hand. So that Jesus now rules. So that there is now a human being who rules the cosmos. Which was the point all along. And now, because Jesus Christ has defeated Satan, and he has ascended to rule the cosmos, and has sent the Holy Spirit, history is going to be turned upside down. God is no longer going to pass over the sins. He's no longer going to hold off. He has now come, and now every nation has to be turned upside down. No longer just one theocracy, but now we're to go forth and make theocracies of every nation baptizing every nation, teaching every nation to observe all things. The gospel is centrally theocratic. The Great Commission is a theocratic commission to disciple every nation. And if you read the book of Acts, the gospel is a thoroughly theocratic message. Jesus is king. His law reigns. Everybody needs to bow the knee. No longer is God going to pass things over. The theocracy has started That's the gospel, and that's the good news. It means that we're going to be vindicated. It means that oppressed people are going to be set free. That untouchables are going to be made part of the kingdom of God. That abused and beat down women are going to be liberated. That they won't have to throw themselves on the fire when their husband is burned up anymore. Or they won't be mutilated anymore. That when people have twins, they won't take the twins out in the woods and leave them to perish because twins are by nature evil and demonic. These things are all going to stop. And the age of love and righteousness is going to come. It has come. So Paul says here in verses 16 and 17 that he is not ashamed of this great good news because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, what do you think of? You have grown up in Israel. You have been grafted into the olive tree, so this is all your history. You were there at the Red Sea. You were there at the conquest of Canaan. You were there when David became king. You rebelled against God and worshipped idols on high places. You went into captivity and suffered for your sins. You came back to the land of Israel. You were there and crucified Jesus. And now you were there when the Spirit was poured out and God forgave you for doing that. That happened to you. That's your history because you've been grafted into this olive tree. That is not the history of people living in Palestine today. That's our history. They were broken out of that history. Were that's our history. Okay? So you've grown up in the synagogue and you know all this stuff. You know everything about the sacrificial system. You know everything about Genesis. You've grown up on the Psalter. You know all the Psalms by heart because you've sung them, 15 of them every week, ever since you were a kid. And you were steeped in the Old Testament. And so now you come to read Paul. Of course, that's our problem, isn't it? Because we don't really have enough of that background. And so sometimes Paul's a little bit strange. But imagine, try to put yourself in the olive tree now. Stop being an American and become an olive. Get in that olive tree. Think back through the Old Testament. And now the book of Romans has come. It's come in the mail. You open it up. It's express mail. It came overnight. You zip the thing down, pull it out. And here is a letter from Paul to the church at Rome. And it says Paul is not ashamed. What do you think of, you Jews? I'm not ashamed. What light bulb goes off in your head? Oh, shame. Anybody? This is a dialogue sermon. The Garden of Eden, yes, yes, they were naked and not ashamed. And then they sinned and they were ashamed. And now Paul says he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed. And not just because he's covered with animal sins, and certainly not because he's got fig leaves, but because his sin has actually been removed in Jesus Christ, and he is clothed in the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes to give him new garments. 
If you look at the Old Testament, you'll find that God, when He appears, He appears in a cloud of glory. And the cloud consists of white light. And inside that white light is shining gold and rainbow colors. And we're told that it's the Holy Spirit who produces that garment around God. And now Paul is saying, we are glorified in Christ and the Holy Spirit is our garment. And how can you be ashamed when the Spirit is your covering? No longer fig leaves, no longer even animal skins. We've got the rainbow of the Holy Spirit around us. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of power. Shame makes you feel powerless. You run and hide in the bushes. But when you're not ashamed, you feel okay. You feel like you can move out. You're not really intimidated anymore. And Paul says he's not ashamed. He's not intimidated. And the reason is that the Holy Spirit clothes him. And he's already made mention of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, when we get to Romans 8, he's going to give us a lot about it. But here he just touches on it. He's not ashamed because the gospel is power. Power is always the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power, who now clothes us. The gospel is power for salvation to everyone who believes. What is salvation? Here again, we mustn't just limit salvation to the day you made your decision and drove your stake in the ground or the day that you were baptized. Salvation is a word that means total health and well-being. Salvation is a whole, everything that the kingdom gives us. Everything from Alpha to Omega. The whole letter of the alphabet. You ever read the Psalms? Some parts of the Old Testament you find that they run through the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse starts with the next letter. Because God is Alpha and Omega. God is a complete alphabet and the kingdom is a complete alphabet. Everything is salvation. And so the salvation that we're given is not something that happens once. It's not that you come to Jesus and believe in Jesus by walking down an aisle. That's legitimate as a first step, but that's only the first step. Salvation is everything that God gives us. All the stuff in here, all the good things that are in your life, all the trials and tribulations that are in your life, which God sends our way to make us sharp, to drive us back to Him, those are all part of salvation. Salvation is a total restoration and transformation of people and of the world. And that salvation is the gospel. And it's for everybody who believes, who puts their trust in God. And we're going to see that the whole book of Romans is about our relationship with God, about being related rightly to God. And so what does he say? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not worried about it. I'm confident. I'm moving out. You know why? Because I have power. The Holy Spirit has come on me and He's clothed me. Nobody can see my nakedness. When they look at me, they see a rainbow. I've got power. And the power is flowing out. And it's a power that completely transforms anybody who believes. And when you have that kind of power, when you have that to offer, you're not ashamed. You're not worried. You're not hiding in the bushes. Now He says, and this is an important theme in Romans, it's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He doesn't say for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. The Gentiles are all of those who are outside of Judaism. But this is only some of them. Already he has said, you remember from last night, that he, verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. That means the people who are in the Hellenistic civilization and the people who are outside of that Hellenistic civilization, like the German tribes up in the north and people down in Africa and the Persian Empire off to the east. All of these people are barbarians, okay? Don't think of, you know, savages running around with spears. It just means non-Greeks. Well, who were the Greeks? Well, we talked about this last night. Remember that when God set the covenant up after the exile, He set it up in two parts. There was the empire and there was the Jews. The Jews would be ministers to all the nations of the world. They were priests for all the nations. And the one particular empire that God sets up is going to guard the Jews and protect them and sponsor them. And so Babylon guards and sponsors the Jews, and then Persia guards and sponsors the Jews, and then the Greeks guard and sponsor the Jews, and finally the Romans guard and sponsor the Jews. Each time, these empires eventually go bad and turn against the Jews, and so God replaces them with a new one, and this continues until the Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire goes bad in the days of the beast, God wipes out the whole system. Now, what Paul is saying is that once the gospel comes, that system starts to unravel. 
we're not going to have Jews and Greeks anymore, but they're going to be Greek believers and Jewish believers are going to be combined into one body. And so are the barbarians. But particularly what he's interested in here is this relationship between the Jews and the guardian empire that was set around them. Between the Israelites and the beast, the book of Revelation refers to and Daniel refers to, the beast, the cherub with fangs that God sets up to protect his people, the Doberman empire of the Greeks who is supposed to guard the house of God. And the gospel goes first, he says, to the Jews, and then to the Dobermans, then to the guardians, and then from them to the barbarians. But first it goes into the Hellenistic civilization. And that's what we see in the New Testament. We don't read in the New Testament about missionary activity in the Persian Empire. Israel was right on the border of the Roman and Persian empires. There was this big Persian empire out here on one side and the big Roman Hellenistic civilization on the other. And when the wise men came from the Persian empire and crossed that border, all those Romans were nervous. And Herod was nervous. And they came and reported to Herod and said, hey, we're not here to cause trouble. We just want to see the new king, (laughs) which caused trouble. But there was this big empire. But ever interested you that in the book of Acts and the letters to the churches, we don't have any letters written by apostles to a church in Babylon or to a church in Susa. And there were Jews all over there, and the gospel went all over there. And we don't have letters being written to a church being planted down in Ethiopia or a church being planted in southern Sweden. Although the gospel missionaries went all over those places, there were Jews all over the Persian Empire. And as soon as the gospel was preached, missionaries went over there. But we don't read about it in the New Testament. The New Testament is concerned with the relationship between the Hellenistic guardian Doberman beast empire and the Jews. And putting those two things together and eliminating that system. Because when the gospel comes, we no longer have Jews and a guardian empire and Gentiles. We just have believers and unbelievers. And so that system has to be changed. And Paul in Romans is very much concerned with the transformation and eradication of that system. Do you follow me? I know that's a new thought. But that is what is happening in the New Testament age. Between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, all the walls that God set up in the Old Testament, the distinctions between priest and people, between high priest and regular priest, the distinction between Israel and the guardian empire, the distinction between the guardian empire and the barbarian, the distinction between where women sit in the church and where men sit in the church, all of those distinctions are coming down. And what's left is believers and unbelievers, like we have today. So that's what we're familiar with, believers and unbelievers. When we get back in the New Testament, we have to realize that there were still these distinctions and this weaving together of all of these believers the barbarian believers, the Greek believers, the Jewish believers, all of these different kinds of believers into one body is the process of these 40 years. God is knitting them together. And when they're done, he can eliminate the temple, he can eliminate the Roman Empire as a beast guardian. It continues just to be an empire like any other empire, but it stops having that special Doberman function in the kingdom of God. That's what's happening here. And he says the gospel goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, that's also a hint to us, isn't it? I mean, if you wanted to plant the gospel in the next town over here, are you obligated to go to the synagogue or to the temple and start there? Is that how we plant churches nowadays? We always go look up all the Jewish people and start with them? No. But in the book of Acts, Paul does. He always goes to the synagogue, and then after he's kicked out of the synagogue, he goes and starts ministering among the Gentiles. To the Jew first. That only goes from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70. So we have to bear that in mind whenever we read a New Testament book, that there are these transitional elements that are involved, and it's here. And so Paul says that this gospel, this powerful thing that makes him confident and not ashamed, that covers him up and covers up anything that he would be worried about, that gives him all this power, that totally transforms anybody who believes, it goes to the Jew first, and then it goes to the Hellenistic guardian empire, and then by implication it's going to go to all the Gentiles. But this is the order in which 
the gospel is proceeding in the New Testament books. Now in verse 17, he says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now what is the righteousness of God and what does righteousness mean in Romans and in the New Testament? And here I need to try to break you free from things that we have grown up believing. We've grown up believing and being taught that righteousness is personal integrity and personal being right. So a righteous person is a person who doesn't do anything wrong. A righteous person is a person who's full of love and in his individual, personal, separate, isolated individual personality is right and is righteous and measures up. So how do you become righteous? Well, we have the yardstick of God's law. And if you measure up, you're righteous. That's not what righteousness is. That's legalism. Righteousness in the Bible, and especially in Paul, is a right relationship with God. It is a covenantal idea. A righteous person is a person who is in fellowship with God who has a right relationship with God. And an unrighteous person is a person who has a wrong relationship with God. You see, as soon as God created the universe outside of Himself, that created universe, the highest expression of which is humanity, humanity is the universe made conscious. Remember, what are we made out of? Dirt. So what you are is you are self-conscious dirt. This may sound New Age, but it's not New Age. It's Bible. New Agers just cheat and pervert it and warp it and twist it and ruin it. But human beings are the universe made conscious. Human beings are the cosmos in relationship to God. We're sort of the top of the pyramid. We are the point at which everything in the world is brought before God. We're the priests of creation. And that universe that God makes outside of Himself, there's two possibilities. It can be rightly related to Him. Or it can be wrongly related to him. As soon as you make something outside of yourself, you can be antagonistic to it or you can be positive to it. That possibility is inherent in the act of creation itself. And as we know, Adam took the universe. Paul says all creation groans. He took the whole universe and got it wrongly related to God by rebelling against God. That's what unrighteousness is. Unrighteousness is to have an antagonistic relationship to God. Righteousness is to have a trusting, faithful relationship with God. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is not just me, myself, in myself, autonomously being right. That's the pagan idea of righteousness. The pagans want each individual to be right. Ultimately, that makes me my own God. And so we get real concerned about being right, don't we? Well, I'm right, I believe, in theocracy and post-millennialism and in all five points. And I've read Van Til and I have the right doctrine. Plus, I've never committed adultery and I've never committed murder. And my problem is that I can't find any churches in my town that are good enough for me to join, so I'm just going to stay at home and be right. Now, when I put it that way, you can see that it's kind of perverted. That's not what righteousness is. Righteousness is a right relationship with God. It's covenantal. And that's why Paul starts off, remember from last night, saying, how do we relate to one another? By one anothering one another. Let each esteem the others better than himself. Paul says, I want to come and give you some of the fruit that's been growing on my tree, and I want to pick some of the fruit that's been growing on your tree and eat it, because we're all in this Garden of Eden together, and each one of us is growing fruit. I've been spending years studying the Bible, and I'm here to give you some of my fruit. Y'all can eat it, or you can spit it out if it doesn't taste good to you, okay? Then you have fruit to give me. As we want another one another, as we feed one another, as the Spirit flows from us, righteousness is relational. And righteousness is relational to God. So the righteousness of God that's revealed is covenant faithfulness of God. It's the right relationship with God. And God reveals that He is faithful in the covenant. He is righteous. He's not breaking the relationship. And because He is righteous... He is not breaking the relationship. He's maintaining covenant faithfulness. 
Therefore, we are called to respond and become righteous and get back into a good relationship with Him. To trust Him instead of not trusting Him. To believing Him instead of not believing Him. Believe God. God says, if you eat this apple, you die. Now, if you really believe that, you don't eat the apple. Adam didn't really believe it. So Adam didn't really believe God. If we believe God, we're back in a good relationship with Him. And he says here that the right relationship with God, especially God's keeping the relationship right, God's keeping of the relationship right, and God's restoration of the right relationship is being revealed, is continually being revealed, because it has all these dimensions to it. It has dimensions regarding your work and dimensions regarding your kids, dimensions regarding how you treat old people and how you treat the fatherless and widows. It has dimensions in terms of your political life, your economic life, your artistic life, etc. It's being revealed continuously what God's faithfulness means. And it's being revealed from faith to faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that you and I start with faith and then we grow and we get more faith. But more likely what it means is from God's faithfulness to our faith. God reveals His faithfulness. How? Because He sent Jesus to die. If God had said, hey, these people sinned, to hell with them. Okay? That would be the end. We'd be toast. But He didn't do that. God maintained faithfulness in spite of our sin. And so He sent Jesus to die. And so He kept faith with us, even though we didn't keep faith with Him. And so God reveals His righteousness from faith to faith. We respond by becoming faithful to Him. When we see how faithful He's been to us, we want to be faithful to Him. We want to be loyal to Him. That's what faith is. It's covenant loyalty. Loyalty in the relationship. Well, he says this. He says, now that, now let me remind you here that, that Habakkuk told us in Habakkuk 2.4 that the righteous man shall live by faith. What does that mean? That means that God's life comes to those who trust in Him. God's life comes to those who trust in Him. The righteous man, the man who's in a right relationship with God, receives life because he trusts God. So this whole thing has to do with the relationship between God and man. God is not interested in making you and me righteous in ourselves so that we measure up to the yardstick. That'll automatically happen if we're in a right relationship with God. He wants to restore the covenant. He's been faithful, and now we are to respond by being faithful. So in summary, God has shown His faithfulness, and that faithfulness calls for us to trust Him and live a new resurrected and transfigured life in the Spirit. So that's the good news. The good news is Jesus is King. The good news is God has restored this relationship, and He offers it to anybody. He's been faithful. He's revealed His righteousness. He's revealed His faithfulness. And now we can come into that by faith. Now, we need to go on a little bit because that's the basic essence of it. Now Paul decides to expand it off. And he goes back and he starts to tell us that we have fallen away from God. We have become wrongly related to God. And that's why this gospel needs to come. It doesn't just need to come because Jesus is going to be king. But in order for Jesus to be king, he has to save us. And so very briefly, let's consider verses 18 to 32, and that will take us as far as we need to get this morning. He says, God had to reveal and manifest his covenant faithfulness because we had broken the covenant. We had broken the relationship. We stuck our fist in his face. And so God reveals his wrath. That's also an aspect of his righteousness and his faithfulness because he told Adam and Eve, if you eat the fruit, you're going to die. So if God's going to be faithful to what he said, he has to show his wrath, which is not good for us. So to start with, God shows his wrath because of our sin, but he also shows, and Paul will get to this in more detail, how he works out our salvation. But right now he starts with the problem. He says in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness means that we are not being like God. 
We're not behaving like the image of God and we're not behaving in the likeness of God. And unrighteousness means that we have broken off this covenant relationship, this right relationship with God. And it says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now this is an interesting phenomenon. A person knows the truth and then he suppresses the truth. In order to suppress the truth, you have to know it. But once you suppress it, you don't know it anymore. This is the problem of self-deception. How is it possible for a person to deceive himself? How can I deceive myself? In order to deceive myself, I have to know the truth, and then I have to suppress it. But in order to suppress it, I have to know it. But once I suppress it, I don't know it anymore. You getting confused? The reason human beings can do that is that human beings are made in the actual image of God Himself. And God is infinite, and God is incomprehensible. We know some things about God, but we're never going to know anything. And the same is true of us. You go on forever. You have infinite possibilities. Because your life is lived in reaction to God, and the more of God you learn, the more areas of you to change. We're going to grow forever. And octillion years from now, you'll be writing plays or learning some new foreign language. Every language has its own slant on who God is, and so one of the things we'll do in eternity is learn all these languages. And then we'll have all these different slants on reality because every language expresses things slightly different. Won't that be fun? It'll be easy to learn languages in eternity, not like it is now. And you'll be doing all kinds of stuff forever and ever. You'll be amazed at stuff you can do, stuff you never thought you could do. Because, as far as anything is concerned, we are infinitely complex. That's why modern psychology and a lot of what Christians think is so dumb. You know, if you listen to rock and roll music, demons will jump in your heart. Well, that might happen, but the fact of the matter is human beings are so complex, you can't predict stuff like that. Human beings are complex. That's why we have to deal with human beings out of the Word of God in ways that we don't understand exactly how it's going to penetrate the consciousness. We can't predetermine everything because we can't analyze human beings. And because human beings are so incredibly complex, human beings have this amazing ability to know something and not know it at the same time. And that's all I can say on that. Now, Paul writes that there are three ways in which everybody knows about God. First of all, verse 19, he says, that which is known about God is evident within them. You see, you and I are made in the image of God, so every time you look in the mirror, you're seeing the image of God. And down inside of you, you know that God is there. And you just don't know that there is a God. You know about the Trinity. You know that each member of the Trinity humbles himself in order to praise the other two, which means you know about the principle of self-sacrifice. You know everything of theology. Sometimes people say, well, people naturally know that there is a God, but it takes the Bible to reveal the Trinity. It takes the Bible to reveal the idea of self-humiliation, blah, blah, blah. No, it doesn't. The only God who exists is the triune God. If you know God in your heart, you know the triune God. And in the Trinity, each member of the Trinity humbles himself to praise the other two. Look at it in the Bible. What does the Father say? This is my son. Listen to him. Jesus says, hey, I'm only doing what the Father tells me to do. Don't look at me. Look at the Father. He who sees me sees the Father. And by the way, the Spirit is coming. I'm leaving. You'll be real happy when I leave because the Spirit is so much better than I am. The Spirit comes and says, hey, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Look what Jesus did for you. Each member of the Trinity glorifies the other two. Everybody in the world knows that. Everybody in the world knows that to be like God is to esteem the others better than yourself. Everybody in the world knows that God is three in one. It's the only kind of God there is. That's why in all pagan religions, you have the idea of some one ultimate God and you also have lots and lots of other gods. All religions have a one and the many. They just have distorted forms of it. And Paul says, if we look at ourselves, everybody knows this because it's evident inside of them. Just by the very fact that you look in a mirror or in a bronze, whatever, you know who God is because it's impressed on you. You are a revelation of God. You and me. Believe it or not, being the images of God, other people reveal God. Second of all, he says God made it evident to them. Not only does it emerge from the fact of who we are, but God is actively making himself present to the consciousness of all people all the time. Everybody out there is a radio that's tuned to station 
777. And 24 hours a day, it's being broadcasted into their being who God is and what God expects. 24 hours a day. Or if they could only find some way to turn the dial to station 666. But they can't. Constantly, 24 hours a day, God is beaming in to our consciousness who He is. So not only do our own persons testify about who God is, but God is continuously beaming the information in. And not only that, but number three in verse 20, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. He says that the created world constantly reveals God. Clearly, not dimly. He doesn't say natural revelation. The trees and the blue sky and everything else is always singing out, God made me, God is three in one, humble yourself. All these trees, all these birds, if you could translate what birds are singing, that's what they're singing. God made me. God made me. That's what they're singing. And you know those whale songs? That's what those whale songs are. You know, that's what they're singing. All the creation is constantly saying who God is. And it's not something that's obscure. It's clear. And sin has not made it hard for us to hear this. Sin does not deafen us to this information. We hear it all the time. Now we've got a problem. We've got three avenues of constant information. Our persons, analogous to the Father, are revealing God to us 100% all the time. God Himself, sending information in, analogous to the Son, is constantly manifesting Himself to us. And the glory of the creation, analogous to the Holy Spirit, is constantly telling us about God. All the time. And not just part of God, all of God. And there's no way we can block it out. So you look outside in the world and say, how can unbelievers not know this? It's because they suppress it. And you say, do human beings have the power to suppress that kind of communication? Let's stop and think about that. God Himself is beaming this information in. God's whole universe is beaming this information in. It's being beamed up from inside of ourselves. And we have the power to suppress it. Now you know how great human beings are. Psalm 8. Don't sing Psalm 8 out of the Trinity hymnal. It's wrong. When I consider the heavens the works of thy hands, the sun and the moon which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The idea is not that man is so low down. The idea that man is so much greater than the sun, moon, and stars. God is not mindful of them. He is mindful of us. And when you understand how amazing our abilities as human beings in the image of God are, then you understand how incredible sin is. How devastating sin is. Because sin is an action of this almost omnipotent person, you. You say, well, I don't have the power to fly. I don't have the power to turn myself into a jet. I'm not a transformer. I can't do this, that, and the other. Yeah, but you have the power to suppress God Himself in your consciousness. Not forever. On the day of judgment, it'll change. Now, that's an amazing thing about us, isn't it? And that means that when we sin, it's amazing. It also means that when we're restored, God has some really amazing things to work with, like you and me. Well, I really don't know what to make of all that, but that's what it says. It says that God is clearly sending this information in and the human beings actually suppress it. Amazing. It shows how much we hate God that we suppress all three avenues of information all the time. But it also shows how much strength we have because we're made in the very image of God Himself. Don't think you're a worm. You're a king who's gone bad. We're not worms that went bad. We're kings that went bad. And when a king goes bad, he gets his nation in trouble. He gets everything in trouble. Worms, it wouldn't have made much difference if we said. But we're not. Now he goes on, he says in verse 21, he talks about Adam and Eve. He kind of surveys history here, but everything is Adam and Eve. 
when they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Well, it's true that everybody knows God, but here he particularly points back to Adam and Eve because they actually knew God face to face. But they didn't honor him as God. They didn't obey him. They didn't trust him. God says, you eat that plant, you die. And they said, I don't think so. Well, that means they didn't believe it. And they didn't give thanks. If you give thanks to somebody, you're grateful. They weren't grateful. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. What did the serpent say? He says, this is a tree to make you wise. And Eve looked at it and saw that it was a tree that would make her wise. And in a sense, that's true. If they had waited and eaten the fruit at the proper time, it would have given them the wisdom. But they tried to make themselves wise, and they became fools. The fool says in his heart, no God for me. And that's what they said. The fool doesn't say there is no God. That's not a really good translation. Proper translation, the fool says in his heart, no God for me. And that's what they did. Their foolish heart was darkened. They became fools. They professed to be wise. And everybody ever since then has done the same thing. It's down inside you and it's down inside me and what the Bible calls our flesh. We tend to do that. Thank goodness God is stronger than we are. So, they became fools instead of wise. And then in verse 23, Paul alludes to the golden calf. Exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. That's a quotation from Psalm 106, verse 20. Let me just read that to you. We're almost done. Psalm 120, verse 6. They made a calf in Horeb. They worshipped a molten image. They exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. Well, of course, Paul doesn't want us just to think about Israel in the wilderness because he's talking about all humanity. So he pulls up from Psalm 106 the idea of exchanging glory and making an idol, and he runs it more generally. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man of birds, four-footed animals, and creepy crawlies. Okay? Therefore, God punished them by giving them what they wanted. That's what we find throughout the Old Testament. God punishes us by giving us what we want when we want the wrong things. And let's just read this over real quick here. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. The image of God, the total person, they might dishonor. They were seeking glory. All men out there, they want their own glory. But the effect of what they do is that they degrade themselves. Adam and Eve were seeking to glorify themselves, but they degraded themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Rejecting God, they tried to make themselves God and worship the creation. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for what is unnatural. In the same way, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons a due penalty for their error. This is not the place to talk about homosexuality in detail, but you will notice that homosexual activity is the thing that he points to right after idolatry. Of all the sins that Paul could point to, this is the one. What does it mean to degrade yourself? You're seeking your own glory, but you wind up degrading yourself. What it means is homosexuality, homosexual acts. If a person has a tendency in this direction, he needs counsel. Paul says he's condemning the acts. They committed indecent acts. That's where the Bible focuses. Uh, we all have sinful tendencies in various directions, and you want to work through these things. If you have these tendencies, don't be ashamed. The Bible says here that every single human being who ever lived is a homosexual in his heart. If you're a sinner, you're a homosexual in your heart. Because that's the essence of original sin, and everybody in this room has original sin. Don't think you're better. You're just blessed if you don't have these problems. Am I making this up? you see the point? He says here, it's of the essence of original sin to tend toward unnatural homosexual relationships. What makes them unnatural is not that they're against nature, but that they're against the divine nature. In context, it said that the divine nature of God is clearly revealed. For since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature are revealed. So when it says that women become unnatural, it means that they are going against the divine standard. 
When men become unnatural, they're going against the divine standard. Why is that? Because in the Trinity of God, you have reciprocal relationships. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit. And so their relationships are bipolar, reciprocal relationships. And that's what a man-woman relationship is. Men are not women and women are not men. Men do not understand women and never will. Because women are infinitely perverse. At least men think so. And so when men try to get along with women, they get frustrated and give up and go off and get along with men. That is especially true of women. Most female homosexuals are such because they have had very bad relationships with men. So they give up. They give up on the mutuality and they do not follow the nature of God, which is to find someone different in a relationship with them, man and woman, but instead they try to have these same, same relationships which goes against the divine nature and is unnatural. It's not unnatural because it goes against some natural law. It's unnatural because it breaks the pattern of the Trinity where you are related to someone who is different from you. Well, then he goes on and he gives this list here. And it would be good to preach on this. Maybe we should. This whole list, all these sins, I should devote five minutes to each one. And I won't. God gives him over to the whole range of sin. Sin number one, idolatry. Sin number two, warping the image of God and warping man-woman relations. Let me just expand on that just a little bit more before we go on. This destruction of man-woman relationships, he says it moves in the direction of homosexuality. But that's not where it starts. It starts in the garden where Adam blames Eve. It starts when men beat their wives. Men beating their wives is real common in the world. And it's becoming more common in America. I'm sorry, but it is. It's just disgusting, but it's true. It starts with women using their tongues to pour acid on their husbands. And that's common too. That's a woman's weapon. Is that sword in the mouth. The flaming sword. That's where it starts. The destruction of the man-woman relationship and then it moves into the homosexual thing. So we start with idolatry. We move to the destruction of the man-woman relationship. And the third phase is everything is evil. He says God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper, that don't conform to God. Being filled with unrighteousness, wrong relationship with God, wickedness, greed, malice, putting the worst possible construction on what other people do. You get out of sorts with somebody and they smile at you if you walk by and you say, look at that, they smiled at me. What are they trying to prove? You put the worst construction on what other people do. Do you ever have that problem? Of course not. Sure we do. Full of envy, wanting to tear other people down. Murder, strife, deceit, malice. <laughs> malice again. Then it says they're gossips. What? What's that doing in this list here? I was talking about murder and strife and envy and malice, and now gossips is right here. Well, the shoe fits. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, thumbing your nose at people, refusing to submit to authority on the job, insolent, arrogant, boastful, dreaming up new ways of evil, Disobedient to parents. Uh-oh. That's right in this same list with murder and gossip. Without understanding. Untrustworthy. Can't trust them. They say they'll do something, but you know they won't. Unloving. Unmerciful. Always wanting to get revenge. Although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. This does not mean that homosexual relationships are worthy of death. That's given in the law. This says all these things are worthy of death. Because God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, in the day you do this, you will die. It says that those who commit gossip are worthy of death. Those who disobey parents are worthy of death. If you're without understanding and untrustworthy and unloving and unmerciful, you're worthy of death. Because any sin is worthy of death. And Paul is not here talking about the civil law. He is talking here about Adam and Eve and the fact that sin brings death. So, in summary, humanity has rejected God 
and rejected the righteousness of God. Humanity has rejected having a right relationship with God. And as a result, everything's falling apart. But the good news is, since we won't be able to read on to Romans 8, the good news is that God has revealed His righteousness and His faithfulness and He makes it possible now for us to be back in a right relationship with God in spite of what we just read. In spite of the fact that human beings have this almost infinite power to suppress the knowledge of God, in spite of the fact that we have totally warped our relationship with each other and that we are filled with all of these depraved instincts, amazingly, God has made it possible for all that to be wiped away and for us to be in a right relationship with Him. And of course, that's why we're here. We are in a right relationship with Him through baptism. We're here because we trust Him. And in a few minutes, He's going to feed us Jesus Himself. And that's the ultimate form of that relationship where we eat Jesus into ourselves and we drink His blood into ourselves. And God sees that and God is pleased to see that we want to be linked up with His Son. We want to be married to His Son. And He takes us into Himself and we take Him into ourselves and that relationship is restored. And this is the great symbol and expression of it. Let's close in prayer. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have restored us to a right relationship with You. We thank You that in spite of our incredible depravity and the amazing strength that we exert in our hatred of You, that You have broken down even that amazing strength and that You have restored us to You. We ask now that as You renew the covenant with us once again, that we would eat Jesus and that we would be restored to fellowship with Him and a right relationship that would give us the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to be clothed and to move out into this world bearing witness without being shamed. We pray in the name of Christ our King, Your Son. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.